I'll be reading Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible gospel to our hearts and souls and minds. Father, help me teach. Help me unfold what's here in this text. And cause us, by the working of your Spirit, to love what's here. To love you more. To the glory of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Philippians chapter 3 rings with the challenging question. Do you love God? Is He your, your ultimate pursuit in life? Let's look down at the text. It's pretty simple. Verse 17 is the command, imitate me. And then the rest, verses 18 to 21, are the reason for the command. The reason why Paul felt the necessity to exhort the Philippian church this way is because there are two paths you could go by. Two destinations. Verse 17, literally, Paul says, become imitators of me. That's the command. Now we know with Paul, there's a trajectory in his life that's laid out there in chapter 3. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a very religious man who did not know God, then Jesus grabbed a hold of him and he considered all of the, his attainments in life. He kept constantly saying, that's trash, trash, trash in comparison to gaining 
Christ. And so he's on this trajectory in chapter 3 of a, of a pursuit that he has not arrived at. He, he says, I have not attained, but I press on. That's the trajectory of the man we're supposed to follow. And the really encouraging thing is that this man is a sinner still. He's a sinner saint like us. And the New Testament records the Apostle Paul's sins and failures. In Acts 23, remember when the high priest addressed him in, in, that, in that courtroom, Paul was so offended by that that he lashed out. He said, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, you hypocrite. And then, of course, Paul apologized to him. And because of Paul's temptation to sinful pride, he says, God gave to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Keep me humble. That was his grace. After 30 years of being a Christian. And, I, and I, I really feel that when Paul he says that, it was very present to him when he calls himself the chief of sinners. This is good news because if Paul, if he had been perfect and, and without sin, he would not have been a great example for us believers to follow. There's a sense in which we need to follow someone who knows what it is to not have arrived and to pursue repentance today. To pursue loving Christ more than the temptations that come at me today. To forgive, to deal with constant imperfections of our personalities and the brokenness of this whole world and of our souls that are being saved if we are in Christ. Yes, Christ Jesus is the perfect standard we're, we're, we're to emulate, but he never pursued repentance. Paul was a fellow traveler on the path toward unattainable in this life spiritual perfection. And thus he's a great model for us believers. And then in the text, the reason Paul just felt the urgency here to tell them to follow his example, or others who follow my Paul as an example, look around, to follow his teaching and his way of living is because he knew there were many examples that they should avoid. These people he warns about who, who walk with a doctrine of antinomianism, no law, 
Come to Jesus. It's just grace. It makes no difference how you walk and live your life. No difference if you love God and overflow in love towards others. They're there in the first century. They're professing believers. Some of them are leaders, which makes the reality of that even more dangerous. And so the New Testament, it constantly warns throughout about the danger of false teachers. In Matthew 7, remember how Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Paul warned Timothy and he warned Titus in those letters about false teachers. Peter and Jude both warned about false teachers. And listen to how our model that we're supposed to follow. Listen to how he speaks to all the, the pastors, the elders gathered there from Asia Minor where he's, I'm never going to see your face again. And he, he gives them his last speech from Acts chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers in order to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things in order to draw away the disciples after them. And therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to warn Everyone with tears. And so now, in Philippians 3, Paul says to them, there are false teachers walking and living false Christian lives. And he calls them enemies of the cross of Christ. He doesn't say it with gladness. He says, I say this with tears because of their example and others who will follow them and because of the destruction that is awaiting their souls for those who walk this path. And that same spirit of easy believism today you said a prayer, therefore, you're safe. 
no matter whether you love God or not. That's around. And he says, quote, their end is destruction. He means eternal destruction there. Then he says, defining them, their God is their belly. It's a metaphor for what they hunger for, what they desire fleshly, sinful appetites is what they eat every day. They live according to the dictates of their sinful nature, unabated. It's where they go. It's how they live. Then he says, and they glory in their shame. They boasted in the very things, the very lusts. In sinful acts that they should feel shame. And so he says this destruction, the belly, the shame, he sums it up with these words with minds set on earthly things. how they live in other words this is the evidence that they were not born again as James says in James 4 4 do do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity means you're an enemy of God switches. He says, that's that's not us. It's not us. There's the other path. Beginning in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ who will in the future He will transform our lowly mortal body to be like His glorious resurrected body. He'll do it by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. In other words, Paul says, for us, our minds are not unearthly things. That's not our God. Our minds and our affections are focused on the gospel. On the good news that He who died for our sins and was raised and ascended will return. And our hearts are anchored through all the the pain and joys and temptations and tears of life. Anchored there citizens of heaven. We await 
Paul's saying that the true Christian is captivated by Christ. Captivated by the promises of the future glory. And Paul is saying, therefore, that captivation by the Spirit is what is weaning us from the world's milk. So next week, I'm going to come back to verses 20 and 21, and we'll just spend the entire sermon on that beatific vision. The adoration of Christ. For the rest of our time this morning, I want us to just consider the stark contrast that Paul lays out here between a mind set on earthly things versus a mind set on heavenly things. Paul's overall plea is don't set your mind on earthly things, but set them, set your minds on God. Another way to say it is, don't love the world, but love God. Now, so I want us to turn where that is clearly said. I find 1 John chapter 2, turn there, verse 15 and 17 to be a one-to-one correspondence is a parallel passage to Philippians 3 and what Paul is saying here. John writes, starting with verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's the same point. Paul's making in Philippians 3. Don't be like those who set their minds on earthly things, the lusts of the flesh. Then here in 1 John 2, the rest of that paragraph is the argument. Why why not love the world or the things in the world? Well, because, what he says next, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's why Paul in Philippians 3 says it leads to destruction. John says here, the reason you should not love the world is that you cannot love God 
and the world at the same time. In other words, by love here in the context, what he means is take pleasure, fulfillment, or you're looking for your happiness or your joy in that object. That's what he means by love. Which is what Paul means when he says, don't set your minds on the things of the world earthly things. Don't be like a hungry man at a beach barbecue when it comes to the world. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one. And he will despise the other. You cannot love or serve God and money. Now, still there in 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Why? Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then comes verse 16. The explanation of that argument. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. His point is, it is just empty talk to say you love God if you love what is not of God. That's the point. Not if you appropriately love gifts that are from God. But when you love, and he defined what those things were, which are not of God, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, John, he could have rested his whole case right there, but then he adds two more arguments. Verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God remains forever. And in other words, the argument is simple. Why would you take all of your money and invest it in a company, a stock, that you knew was going to go bankrupt? Why would, why would you... Take your life, settling your mind and your life and your actions and put it into a company that's guaranteed to lose everything, including your soul. It'll all pass away with its desires 
That means with those who worship it. With everyone whose desires are for the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It's all passing away. What Paul just says it in our text is their end is destruction. And the opposite is at the end of verse 17. Not passing away, he says, but loving God so much, you do His will. But whoever does the will of God remains or abides forever. John is not saying that obeying God's commands saves you. He's not saying do the will of God in the way you live and that will bring to you salvation in Jesus or justification. That is not His point. He knows the gospel. He preaches the gospel. He knows that no amount of do-goodism could save anybody. Christ saves. And the way that individuals are saved is by faith springing in the heart And they're justified. And it's over. But what he knows is that faith that came alive by the miracle of God in new birth remains. And that's what produces whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's what he's saying. Look at, flip, just, I don't even know if you've got to flip a page. Look at 1 John chapter 5. Verse 3, he says it this way. For this is the love of God. He means, this is what it means for us Christians to love God. Here it is. That we keep His commandments. And, it means something else, to us, because of God's grace, His commandments are not burdensome. So it's empty talk to say, I love God, but I do not love what God loves. And this is the same point Paul makes when he says by implication in Philippians 3, don't set your minds on earthly things. Don't make your fleshly belly, your appetites, your desires, don't make them your God. Okay, so let's let this this exhortation in Philippians, 1 John, let it hit us. Every one of us who claims Christ as our Savior. 
He says, set your minds. Set your desires. Set your appetites and your passions on Christ. Whose future return in his resurrected body. And the establishment and the consummation of the kingdom. Which is invisible. But spiritual now. And will be utterly transform all of physicality then. He says set your minds. Your hearts. On that. Not on the things of the world. In other words love God. Love the gospel. Love the promises in the gospel. Like you love air. If you're short of it underwater, you know how much. After, shoot, 10 seconds, you love air. He says it this way. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Remember what that human being said to his friends before he ascended. All authority. In heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he's here this morning. By the spirit of Christ in our midst. Listen to how Peter. Unfolds the same essence of the Christian life. First Peter one. Verses eight to nine. Though you have not seen him like I, Peter, have. I walked with him, lived with him, ate with him, even after his death. But though you, like all of us here, you've not seen him, but you love him. Though you do not Right now, see him. You believe in him. And you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. That joy is filled with glory. And you're obtaining the outcome of your faith. That is what faith is. The salvation of your souls is what you're obtaining. So, so can, can you trust him savingly and not love him? Can you be a person who has saving faith, but your God is not God, but your God is the world or your fleshly appetites? Peter's answer is no. John's answer is no. Paul's answer in Philippians 3 is no, you cannot. It's love 
God or love the world. Paul, what must I do to be saved, Silas? Answer is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the answer. What Paul is doing, what John is doing, what Peter is doing is laying out what believe, the verb believe or the noun, have faith, what it, what it means. That's what Paul's doing in Philippians 3, 20 to 21. That's what saving faith is. Loving Christ and anticipating the final redemption that we await in tears and brokenness in a body that has pains that it never knew it could have for no reason. Listen to how Jesus says the same thing. And turn to John for a moment. Gospel of John chapter 5 verse 42 to 44. He's talking to religious folk. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I know you do not love God. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you, here's the verb, believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory it comes from the only God. In other words, Jesus is saying the reason you don't receive or believe in me, Jesus, is that you don't love God. They love the world. They love the glory of Men, not the glory of God. Jesus' point is where there's no love for God, there is no saving faith. How could you believe? And that's why the Apostle John can take love for God and trust in Christ, faith. In Christ and, and treat them as the one way to eternal salvation. Turn back again to First John for a moment. Let's continue to read. Let's go back to start with verse three of chapter five. For this is the love of God. This is what it means to love God. Here it is. That we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Why? Because, that's what 4 means in verse 4. 
Because everyone who's been born again, that's what he means here. That's, he uses his terminology, which is beautiful. For, or because everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our love for God. Well, he chose not to say it that way, but that's exactly the flow of the text. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, because everyone who's been born again or born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Love of God and faith are interchangeable here to John. And it is that faith that overcomes the world, it conquers disobedience, and it turns God's commands into a joy rather than a burden to the believer. So Paul says in our text, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. That means waiting, focusing, anticipating, driven by the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying in Philippians 3 is that our affections set on our homeland and the future in heaven, which is doing a, a work. Never perfection. Philippians 3 is clear about that. The last four weeks we've been clear about that. You will sin this week. But you also will be manifesting a love for God in His moral commands that are flowing from that love. You're walking, in other words. It's directional. He says that that process is not optional. There's two paths, and the other path is destruction. Okay, so I'm going to do one more thing. And, yeah, it's worthy of great conversation whether it's after church or on Wednesday night or any other a time. But we want, to be, we want to deal and read text and what they say. We want to understand the meaning of them. What are you talking about, John? He's not talking about perfection. But there is a way in which one loves the Ten Commandments because they're Christians. And there's something within us that would say, I don't love that and we're in a battle. But the main point of this sermon is loving God. Meaning, not loving like you were supposed to love your neighbor and help feed them because they're hungry. That's a whole different kind of love. That's a benevolent love. Loving God the way you love air or your favorite meal. In other words, you're loving God. The, your ultimate spring of eternal life. Just to, to have a, a vision of him. And, and boy, he, he has chosen to reveal so much of him. To have a vision of him. 
by the indwelling Spirit. Loving God is the essence of what saving faith is. So, now having said that, in hundreds of thousands of churches this morning, I think there are people sitting throughout all of them and may be in here. And as I have said what I have said so far in this sermon, may be thinking, I don't feel very much love for God. I think there are two possible reasons for that. The first reason is because that person has not been born again. It is possible that one is a cultural Christian or hereditary Christian. Or it may have been back in their life a couple years ago or a decade ago or whenever that it was, that was a cool thing to do then was to be, become a Christian. It may be that I didn't want to go party and drink in high school, so I went with my friends to this awesome youth group. And it was great Friday after Friday after Friday, the food, the fun, the games, and, and some Bible. And there was an altar call. And so, I, yeah, I made a decision to become a Christian. It, it could be because of some dude in his early 30s got sick of being a drug addict or an alcoholic. And someone invited them to the 12-step program out of their church. And they've been clean for years so, yeah, I like these people. Could be that, you know, my, my girlfriend was a Christian, and it's like, you know, this would be a lot easier if I just went ahead and decided to become a Christian too. Whatever situation. But what you get now is that they know the ropes. They know, and it's not even that they wake up being, I'm being insincere. No, they t I did the thing. They told me I'm a Christian. That's what I am. They've learned to talk the talk and to act like a Christian. Or, you know, you could be raised in the church like my six kids and say, of course I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. That's what we do in our house. And you're 33 years old. I have no kid that's 33 yet, so this is not... And you manifest it. You love the world. And the whole point is it's very possible to say, yeah, I don't feel any love for God because you've never had the experience of the Holy Spirit doing that miraculous, simple, yet profound change in your heart, which gives birth to that new love for God. Yeah, it's very, all throughout this world today, there are people in churches who have never had the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ shined in their hearts. Their religion is all not an inner experience of love for God, for Christ. That's one possibility. The other is this. For someone, and we have all been there, 
as Christians. I just don't feel very much love for God. So the second option, it is that you are actually born again. But your love for God has grown cool, weak. In other words, it's true. You know what it is. You have, you have tasted the bread of Christ. The meal of Christ. You have tasted and seen that He really is better than all the world. But something has happened now. And your flame of fire has grown to be a, just a little teeny candle that just flickers. And so you experience that when the food of God, when the meal of the Word of God is served on Sunday mornings, or a Bible study. Or a Bible by yourself. The meal is there. And you have no appetite. Why? Maybe because you have been filling up on donuts. The things of the world are donuts. God and the gospel, the scriptures are steak and vegetables. And the more we eat donuts, when the steak is served, it's, I'm okay. I wonder when this meal's over. Have no appetite. Like the Hebrew writer said, just dullness of hearing. I'm not hungry. If anyone tries to, to go on and satisfy their hunger with the ice cream of the world, then they won't be hungry. They won't be able to eat and enjoy the filet mignon cooked perfectly with vegetables. Remember, John said it this way. For all that is in the world, that is, all that is in the world of donuts, he defines it, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not the meal that the Father serves you. It's not from the Father. It's from the world. Those three things, three characteristics, the flesh, the drives of our sinful natures. That's what he means by flesh here. It, that, that drives against God's revealed moral commands in the scripture. It, it, it drives us to say, I know God said that, but that temporal pleasure, that's what I'm hoping for. That's what he means by love the world. Or the desires of the 
It's a weird way to say it, right? But he does. Eyes. Where? Down here. During this time. Away from the Holy Scripture. It means the world calls us. You have to have that. You gotta have this. You want you want to be happy, don't you? What's funny is that's the same thing the gospel says. You want to be eternally happy, don't you? And then there's the pride of life. It doesn't mean that you're proud to be breathing and alive. It means the, the, the arrogance and the pride in what we possess. It, it means that to drive to want to impress people with, with, with our wealth or our, our position or our intelligence or our rank or any kind of abilities. It's the pride of life. Praise me. Every one of us knows how good that feels. Okay. The more we eat of the donut, the more that I don't know if I love God. Oh, dear believer, he is so good and so merciful as he has shown in your life over your journey again and again, and back over your journey, and today the prescription for a coolness of our love for God. It's not much different than the seeking of salvation in the first place. The very God by the Holy Spirit who plucked you out of darkness can take away the dark night of the soul. The same God who gives new life originally nourishes, nourishes life through the word of God, through the word of truth in prayer. And so what do we do? God, my heart has grown cold. You be honest in prayer with him and you yield. You don't exert you yield to the Holy Spirit while immersing yourself in the Word of God. Don't be content with lukewarmness, but imitate Paul. That's the text in our passion, his passion. Let me just close first. Here is the Apostle Peter's counsel to any Christian we will all be there to one degree or another. My love for God is growing cool. And you start to see it as you yield to the works of the flesh. Sin. This is how Peter says it. Put away all malice. Yeah. Loving the world more. Oh, I mean, too much donuts. Malice is coming through me. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Okay, yeah, here it is, here it is, here it is. And do what? Okay, put that away and like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk 
that by it you may grow up into salvation. Since, okay, this is what indeed, you're, you've been born again. Since indeed you have tasted that the Lord Jesus is good. That's his encouragement. And Paul's model, I close with it. His model for us is this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For, for His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having any righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God is a gift to me that depends on faith so that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and that I may share His sufferings becoming like Him in His death that by any means possible, I, Paul, may attain the resurrection from the dead. Oh, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. No. But I press on. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Oh, dear Christian brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching or straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers, Join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Our citizenship. It's in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus That's why we believers survey the wonderful cross. Let's pray. Father, cause each and every one of us whom you've called to your Son to experience an expansion 
in our love, in joy, in delight, in adoration of the Holy Trinity, of you, our Father, of Christ, your Son, in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit.